Hello and welcome to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, broadcasting from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York, on the unceded homelands of the Mohican people known today as the Stockbridge-Munsee community. I'm Sina Bazila-Hickey. And I'm Kaelin McPherson today on the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. First, Mark Dunley tells us about Paws's 10th anniversary celebration. Then, Elizabeth E.P. Press tells us about the in-person information session coming up around the proposed closure of the Burdett Birthing Center and the need for community support. Later on, Tom Francis spotlights Mojave, an active poet, host, and organizer. After that, we get our chuckles from Brad Moncal. He talks with Carmen Lynch, a stand-up comedian who will be performing at the Lark Street Tavern. Finally, we interview Dave Kasner, the newest DJ to join Jazz Sanctuary. All that and more, but first, here are your headlines. The Union College men's and women's hockey teams have agreed to a $20 million new uh, 25-year deal to play their games at the Mohawk Harbor Event Center. Groundbreaking for the center is expected this spring. Albany Law School student Kevin Waltz, 25, a staff person for the Republican State Assembly member, is planning to run against Paul Tonko for Congress, even though the boundary lines for the congressional districts have not yet been finalized by the state legislature or courts. Highway superintendents and local officials in Rensselaer County are pushing back against Governor Hochul's proposal to cut local street and highway improvement funding by $60 million next year, asking instead for a $200 million increase to offset a 58% increase in the cost of road repairs over the last 18 months. Willie Dean, the former Schenectady High School standout basketball player who was hired last year as the city of Schenectady's parks director, has left for a pre-apprenticeship program to become an electrician. At least six candidates will petition for the Democratic primary to replace State Assemblymember Pat Fahey, who has been tapped by the party to replace retiring Senator Neil Breslin. City Council Member... uh, Gabriela Romero has received the endorsement of the Working Families Party. And that's it for your headlines. For those of you just tuning in, you're listening to Hudson Mohawk Magazine, listener-supported radio that builds community in Troy and the surrounding capital region through broad grassroots participation. Our content is produced by volunteers. To learn how you can contribute, go to mediasanctuary.org or send us an email at hmm@mediasanctuary.org. Or you can always call us at 518-272-2390. Pause. People of Albany United for Safe Energy will observe its 10th anniversary with a celebration held on Thursday, February 29. Mark Dunley tells us more. On Thursday, February 29th, pause. People of Albany United for Safe Energy is having uh, a get-together at Westminster Presbyterian Church in uh, in Albany at 6 p.m. to observe its uh, 10th anniversary of uh, the founding of PAWS, which is the 350.org affiliate in the Capital District. And we're joined by uh, Diana Wright, who's one of the core uh, organizers uh, of PAWS. So, uh, Diana, what does it feel like to be observing 10 years of uh, 
pause here in the Capital District? <laughs> That's a very good question. I It snuck up on me. I didn't realize that it had been 10 years. I guess time flies when you're having fun. Uh, we've, we've done a lot and the climate has changed figuratively and um, literally. Um, so we've grown from starting to fight the bomb trains, which is why we formed originally, to breaking out into several different um, subgroups and committees that have launched off and formed their own 501c3s and their own committee. So I think that we've been, um, I think that we've been successful in, in making changes and we cover a lot of avenues as far as doing rallies and protests and legislative action and education. Well, you, you mentioned the bomb trains, which is probably what most people initially knew pause from. And this was, I believe, uh, they were shipping in um, Balkan crude oil from the Dakotas into the port of Albany, which a lot of people forget is actually an international port. Of course, the Hudson River goes directly into the ocean. So, you know, what what did PAWS do in terms of the bomb trains? Um, we had a lot of people that got involved at the very beginning because it was such a volatile um, issue that the trains were coming into Albany. The cars were originally used for shipping molasses and vegetable oil. They weren't made for shipping volatile uh, fuel and the Bakken crude was very, very pure when it comes out of the ground, which is why it was so desirable. Um, so that made it highly explosive and the railroad tracks and the railroad lines um, are in really, really bad shape. So there were derailments all over the place. Um, and so we did a lot of campaigns down on Broadway. Um, we had rallies in front of the DEC to try to get them to clamp down on the length of the trains, which could be up to two miles long, which would block intersections, which would make it dangerous for ambulances to get where they needed to go. Um, we did a lot of education and outreach, and we tried to get some legislation going. We worked with the uh, people down at Ezra Prentice because they're most influenced and impacted by the trains being in their backyards. Um, they they had and still do, unfortunately, have the clinking of the trains and the moving of the trains in the middle of the night and they get sleep deprivation and the pollution is down there is is really bad. So we were working with the um, Ezra Prentice South End community to try to alleviate their issues. Um, I think that that covers it. We did a big break free rally that 3000 people came to in 2016, I believe, and had a civil disobedience action and blocked the, tra the tracks, which drew a lot of attention. No, I, um, I I know one of the things that you particularly been involved with, but um, also pause has really looked at the whole question of, of solid waste and has helped set up the zero waste committee here at the capital district. And I know that you also been involved in um, really trying to increase uh, composting of, of food waste here in the capital district. How's that been going? It's been going very well actually um when we first got involved and started 
working with the city of Albany, we started with the Jazz Fest and we hired another company, um, Zero, oh, I can't remember, down in Hudson. Um, and we learned from them on how to do zero waste stations at the Jazz Fest. And we have grown into doing our own. I own Food Scraps 360, which I actually bought because of being in Zero Waste Capital District and the previous owner. Um, needed to back off because she was just getting burned out. So I took it over in 2019. And when we first started, we got a lot of grumbling at the Albany events. Why do we have to do this? We don't want to do this. Um, just throwing garbage almost meanly into the compost uh, bins. Um, but now when we do the Tulip Fest, people are very happy that we're doing it they thank us all the time they are interested in how do we how do we compost how do we um recycle where does this go how does it work people are very interested it's it's becoming um very not i wouldn't say popular but people are very much more aware of composting and our our waste situation than they were 10 years ago and um so i think that with the laws that are being passed and the education that we're doing and outreach, I think that we're starting to get the composting issue more front and center and people are learning about it and know it's important. Now, when I, uh, when, when Poise first started, I was actually living most of my time uh, down in uh, Brooklyn. But when I came back to the Capital District, you know, one of the things I joined Poise in was these, um, I think almost weekly vigils out in front of TD Bank, uh, down across from the state capitol. Um, what was that all about? Yeah, that started because we um, are aware of the fact that a lot of the big banks are financing fossil fuel drilling and infrastructure buildup. And that's a main problem with the climate problem that we're in is that we keep building out more and more dirty energy infrastructure and these banks are financing it. So we um, got into the divestment. We didn't start it, but we got involved with the divestment um, from fossil fuels and trying to get the banks to stop um, financing these projects. And that grew in, into also um, challenging Comptroller Dinapoli to divest the um, state um, retirement fund from the fossil fuels, which he's been very hesitant and um, resistant to doing. Now, I know that pause normally meets the fourth uh, Thursday at each month because of COVID in, in recent years has been meeting um, by, um, by, by Zoom. But February this year, leap year, uh, actually has 29 days. So you're doing the 10th anniversary celebration at Westminster Presbyterian Church, 85 Chestnut Street, Albany, 6 p.m. What's going to happen at that in the last two minutes or so? Uh, we are going to just get together with past members and current members and um, recap the past 10 years and go over what we're doing now and where we can go in the future. We're gonna have a community dinner that's free. Um, we're going to have a viewing of I Am Greta 
um, who is leading the youth climate actions um, from Sweden. And so hopefully that will be inspiring. We'd like to get a lot more youth involved in um, in our work. We'd like to support them a lot. So hopefully they we can get some youth to come. And uh, Bill McKibben is going to, uh, has recorded a statement on congratulating us on our 10 years and our, our accomplishments. Um, and basically that's, uh, that's it. We just want to see new, new people and old faces and, um, just try to get some more excitement and some energy. Now I understand the, the pause website is pauseenergy.org, but just, uh, one E after, after pause and before energy. Um, and you're having food at this event. Is this free? Yes. It's, uh, it's a free event with, Nothing fancy, but yes, there will be there will be food, healthy food, and it is free. Well, thank you much. I've been talking to Diana Wright, um, 10th anniversary of Pause, People Evolving Night for Safe Energy, Thursday, February 29th at uh, starts at 6 p.m. over at the Westminster Presbyterian Church, 85 Chestnut Street. And this has been Mark Dunley for the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Again, uh, for more information on that event, you can go to pauseenergy.org. That is P-A-U-S-E-N-E-R-G-Y.org. And again, that event will be on Thursday, February 29th at 6 p.m. at the Presbyterian Church on 85 Chestnut Street, Albany. St. Peter's Health Partners is holding an in-person information session about the proposed closure of Burdett Birth Center in Troy, New York. Rose Mitchell from the Save Burdett Birth Center Coalition spoke with Elizabeth E.P. Press about the session on Wednesday, February 28th, and why it is important for community to show up. On June 13th, 2023, St. Peter's Health Partners announced their intentions to close the Burdett Birth Center located at Samaritan Hospital in Troy, New York. It is the only birth center in all of Rensselaer County. A group of birth workers, parents, and organizations formed the Save Burdett Birth Center Coalition. Today, we are joined by midwife, the Save Burdett Birth Center Coalition member, and longtime activist for birth justice, Rose Mitchell to give us an update on the proposed closure of Burdett Birth Center. Rose, welcome to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Thank you. Thanks for having me. You all have been busy and we haven't checked in with you in a minute, but on Wednesday, February 28th, St. Peter's Health Partners is holding an in-person information session about the proposed closure of Burdett Birth Center. You guys have been working hard. You kept it open past the original closure date. And I'm just curious, what is this informational session? Uh, what do you expect to hear? Yes, we've been fighting really hard and there's been an incredible outpouring of support from the community. And there are just so many different members of this coalition. It's really exciting and I'm really proud to be a part of it. Tomorrow night, this forum that St. Peter's is hosting I think we feel as a coalition that it's kind of in response to complaints from us and possibly also from the Department of Health that St. Peter's has yet to engage meaningfully with the community and provide a, an adequate, you know, listening ear for community concerns. So I think that's more or less their motivation for hosting this event. They had a forum that was virtual back in November 
that had a lot of people online watching, but they had some pretty tight control over um, who could speak and the questions that were asked and things like that. And so it was kind of received uh, from us and from members of the community as sort of like a dud in terms of, you know, that earnest attempt to engage with the community and address their concerns. What we're hoping for is a clear plan to address some of the concerns that we have around this closure. The outstanding issues right now are transportation and the loss of the midwifery model of care and the just general reduction in services to an already underserved community. I wanna back up a smidge and clarify that Burdett is a birth center in name only. Um, it is actually a maternity unit at a hospital. The term birth center should be reserved for an independent freestanding facility that is not actually a hospital. I point that out because I feel like it's a marketing ploy that um, hospitals use as part of their bait and switch tactics to earn goodwill and undo confidence from the community about the type of care that they're going to get in those types of facilities. Um, that said, Burdette does achieve excellent results, excellent outcomes, and does that with within the context of a community that is uh, like, I think 55% of their patients are Medicaid recipients. And anyone who's like, who knows the city of Troy knows that it's a, a very ethnically, racially diverse city. And part of the reason that Burdette achieves the outcomes that it does is because it is primarily operated under the midwifery model of care. Certainly there are constraints there because it is a hospital, um, but the folks who work there, be they nurses, midwives, uh, support staff, and even the obstetricians who support them you know, and back up the midwives are used to what normal physiologic birth looks like. And patients go there with the understanding that they're gonna be given time and respect and safety and all of these things that are really important for achieving the excellent outcomes that Burdett has achieved. So when they talk about closing Burdett, uh, at baseline, it's a tragedy that this city would lose this basic service, but the reality that it is an excellent example of maternity care makes it that much more devastating to those of us who are familiar with it and who are familiar with these issues. Since June of 2023, there has been rallies held by your group. There have been studies done. The state attorney general held a hearing in Troy. Most recently, Mayor Montello in her state of the city said that she would fight to keep Burdett Birth Center open. The firefighters, EMTs, like it seems like on multiple levels, there's a call to keep Burdett Birth Center open. So is there any chance that that will stay open and is it up to the health department or whose hands does it lay in today? Um, that's a good question. I, I think there's a chance. Personally, I'm not optimistic because I believe that St. Peter's wants to wash their hands of this and walk away entirely. And I think that they will do whatever it takes to do that. Um, even if it means paying more in fines than they claim is their, you know, fiscal shortfall that is driving the, the reason for the closure. So in the closure process, they have submitted their closure plan to Department of Health. 
and this process is like regulated. It only has to undergo what's called a limited review. And so there's a like inherent lack of transparency in the decision-making process at DOH because it's only a limited review. Since June, the coalition rallied, sort of forced St. Peter's to hold themselves accountable to the community. The attorney general got involved. She had her hearing. Um, I was actually at an event last weekend at the legislative office building about achieving racial equity in birth. And Tish James gave opening remarks and mentioned Burdett and talked about how she takes responsibility for Burdett still being open despite St. Peter's you know, decision to close it by the end of last year. Um, and she made it clear that she intends to compel them to keep it open indefinitely. So I, I trust her. <laughs> I have a ton of faith in her. She's someone who's been getting a lot done. But who knows, you know, the legal mechanisms that exist are probably not adequate. I don't know that anybody can force a private entity to continue to do business. So it remains to be seen. If Burdett can be saved, I believe that it will have to be done with different ownership and different leadership. It will probably not look the way that it does now if it is able to be saved. If you go back even further in history, though, Burdett was not, Burdett was originally an independent entity. It's only been since uh, 2020 that it's been owned and, op and operated by St. Peter's. So there's a precedent for it existing in the facility that it's in under different leadership. So perhaps we can figure out a way to go back to that model. I think that is probably our best chance of keeping it open as is. As far as um, the future goes, we're waiting for the health department to make a decision on their closure plan. And when that decision comes down, you know, we will either get what we want or we will keep fighting. And as you continue to keep fighting, Rose, on February 28th, Wednesday, the, at this information session that St. Peter's Health Partners is holding in the community, you are asking people to show up. So I was wondering, um, before we run out of time, if you could share some of the details about how you're making it easier for people to get to HVCC, Hudson Valley Community College. We've been lucky enough to have CDTA support our efforts, and they've donated a bus, a whole bus, um, which will be uh, leaving from the Center for Economic Opportunity at 2328 Fifth Avenue in Troy and going to the venue where the event will be held and then returning there when it's over. The venue is at Hudson Valley Community College. It's at the Balmer Telecommunications Center. It's from 6 to 7.30, roughly. Certainly, if you can get there yourself, uh, there's plenty of parking. As we wrap up, can you tell us why it's important for people to attend this event tomorrow? Why is it important for you to get people out there tomorrow night? St. Peter's needs to know that we care. We can't let them take away vital services without fighting back. Many of the people who this closure will impact the worst are in chronically marginalized communities who uh, have limited access to care, limited access to political power, and the importance of the community showing up and fighting for them. Um, cannot be understated, especially when we are facing a maternal mortality crisis that is unprecedented in modern times and puts our nation and our state to shame with the statistics and outcomes, and especially for people of color. 
if you have the ability to come out and show St. Peter's that we're not gonna sit idly by and let them mess with healthcare in our community, please do. Thank you for that, Rose Mitchell. And thank you for joining us today on the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Thanks for having me, it's a pleasure. For updates, listen to future episodes of Hudson Mohawk Magazine for updates on the Burdett Birthing Center. For those of you just tuning in, I'm Sina Bazila-Hickey. And I'm Kellen McPherson. You're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine on the Hudson Mohawk Radio Network on WOOCLP 105.3 FM Troy, WOOGLP 92.7 FM Troy, WOSLP 98.9 FM Schenectady, and WOALP 106.9 FM Albany, and streaming online at mediasanctuary.org. This program comes from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York. If you like what you hear, you can support this program by sharing our content. Find today's stories and more at mediasanctuary.org. And this week on Talking with Poets, we re-air Tom Francis' story on Mojave, who's been one of the most visible and active poets, hosts, and organizers in the area for decades. Mojave has been one of the most visible and active poets, hosts, and organizers in the area for decades. He began writing at a very early age and over the years has worked tirelessly to bring poetry and spoken word to venues all over the country. Mojave was one of the many local poets who got their start at the QE2 open mics and quickly was able to build his own community of artists and writers in the capital region. In 2011, he was one of the original organizers of the Nitty Gritty Slam series and coached the very first team from Albany to go to the National Poetry Slam in 2012. In our conversation, we talk about not giving up on your dreams, how addiction changed neighborhoods in the 80s and 90s, and if poetry can still change the world. But first, we start off with Mojave performing his piece, Around My Block, at the Poets' Realm Slam in Bridgeport, Connecticut, on July 11th, 2012. Tell me if this sounds like someplace you might have heard. Around my block, cars go by with booming systems at 1, 2, 3 o'clock. Hip hop in the morning, breaking dawn is well asleep because the walls vibrate with the news mixtape. <laughs> and sleep is what you can't do. And around my block, I see my man's little sister's Raquana, and she's got curves, and she's round. About nine months round. And she only 14. Does Mr. Johnson know? I don't think so. See, she a church lady. She pray every day. She got service on Sunday, Monday, inspirational Thursday, celebration Friday, Bible study. So that's Saturday, soup kitchen, kicking fried chicken for collard greens after Sunday. Service. Right, Mr. Palmer I don't know. But I gave her more time alone, so that little fast ass bone 30 little Jay, who don't claim her anyway. And around my block, crackhead stroll with mad merchandise, and I call my iPod for a crazy cheap price. Now, my brother got this double ordinary stereo tape deck with the graphic equalizer, the full control automotive stereo that can make you holler for $50. And that's after we talk down for 75 Kids play two-hand push on me, touch football on the street, cursing at every car that they meet that breaks up the game. Counting seven Mississippi's in rush. Still doing the all-star play such as the Statue of Liberty, the original free flicker you think they ain't, so they make it past the number two telephone pole with orange paint. While Mr. Johnson cusses at every little nigga that rings his doorbell, knowing he can't chase him, because two houses up, Crazy Mike, he hides, he beats on Lisa, and she always comes out and says, I had an accident. You might help me. Help you what? 
two fat black eyes and two will cry when other people are asleep. Because there's always some secret that you keep. Now around my block, the people don't speak unless they need something. Not like a cup of sugar, but better, five or ten dollars. And when you ask them when, they say, yo, son, I'm hit you up on the first. You'll check me out on the 16th. My check is in the mail tomorrow. Yo, son, I got you. And you're in the world of sorrow because they can get to the next sorrow. And when you go to the corner store, Habib be trying to run slave while charging 50 cents for a dollar so and say, people still, I make no money. But they got the nerve to charge you $5 for eight ounce can of formula. Now he Muslim, but saw the can of case of 40 cricket to shorties with the cash wouldn't get sick off the liquor, but he got them bomb island beef patties <laughs> with the 245 euro specials with the 25 cent chips. And he bargained every honey dip that run up in the store. But around my block in the summer, it's hot and beautiful. Cause brothers be chilling, you know, grandmothers be doing baby girl hair, waiting for Mr. William to come over to buy a hydrant for cool smiles, cause ain't no pools for miles. And we be sucking ghetto dreams from 10 cent ices and Fujo's ice creams. Kids be riding blocks and girls be taking hikes throughout the block with their jean shorts, the 54 levers and the holding tops and the one piece of a striped dresses with the one cut and I was rocking extension. And did I mention, there's never any gunshots till it gets about 100 degrees interrupted by freeze. Cause you fit a description. But around my block, it's sweet from the sounds we brought the speakers pushed up into radios and mad flows of R&B like mazes. Before I let go, my bald heads and reds play no woman no cry as they pass by around my block. No, around my block, um, around uh, Livingston, like uh, from North Manning Boulevard to Livingston, pretty much was my my growing up. It was my footprint, you know. Um, my my father lived at 35 North Manning. My mother lived at 475 um, or 455 at that time, uh, Livingston Avenue. And so in between there, I would be able to play at Third Street Park, which is where a lot of interactions took place. And so when you're in that type of landscape, you get to see all the stuff that is happening as you're moving. So throughout my years of growing up through high school, all the way into college, I got to see the neighborhood um, go from a really tight-knit community to watching how crack and drugs started to affect it. And so um, around my block was basically me giving my, giving my standard observation of what I saw, but also giving the love of what I've seen um, happening at the same time. So, you know, the people, you know, the characters were all people that I actually knew, but they actually were, you know, transformed into something else while I was doing the piece. You know, so what you call it? So cars go by with boom systems, one, two, three, hip hop in the morning, breaking dawn as well as sleep, you know, because people would drive around the neighborhoods, you know, with the booming system playing it. And you'd be like, yo, it's like three o'clock in the morning. What the hell is wrong with you? But, you know, of course, we need to let people know how dope our system is and how everything else, because it's my way of trying to figure out what my importance is by letting you know what kind of system I got a dope car and all this other stuff, but I got it by ill-gotten means reward me, you know, the opposite things that attract. So in that poem, those are the things I speak about. When Mojave was in 10th grade, he started seeing changes in his neighborhood. Like I didn't really see people on crack until 10th grade. There was a lot of addictive people that were running around that were infirmed by their addictions. At that time, there was more than I could count, you know, because literally the wave of, of crack cocaine took, you know, uh, uh, arrested a hold of that community, seriously. And, you know, and, and 
everything changed. That's when people started to, you know, things became more violent. I can remember a time where I could literally like just walk and feel unmaligned, like you just walk anywhere you wanted to walk to. I asked Mojave if he thought if the crack epidemic of the time was treated as a mental health or addiction issue, would things have been different? Well, number one, there's 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 a few things that are going on, right? Um, number one, we we never perceive addiction as a disease. We're like only doing it now. That's because the addiction, when it was in impoverished communities, Black and Latino communities, to be exact, it really wasn't so much of a problem. You know, things were Rockefeller drug laws, all these different things were put in place to ensure, which wasn't addressed as an addiction or or a byproduct of poverty. It was. You know, how can I use this as something to build up my, you know, uh, communities and upper states to create income on the backs of people who are arrested for, you know, carrying some some weed and maybe the smallest amounts of uh, crack cocaine that's possible. But in the meantime, in between time, the the idea of poverty wasn't addressed, why people would take chances to sell something to get that. And the funny thing is, like, when you look at it at any rate. The people who were who were selling and using, they all became part of a system that basically helped to build up um, the economic advancement of, of rural communities that had jails and things of that sort. And um, that's why it's like, you know, crazy that now that, you know, even New York State is getting into uh, marijuana and things of that sort, that all those, uh, all those uh, convictions have to be vacated because they arrested people for all of these different things that were happening. And it wasn't addressed in that sense of saying this is a byproduct. It was looked at primarily as a as a problem for people of color. And this is why they're pathological. And this is the reason why they're doing this. Instead of looking out, these things were actually created to do everything. And now the weird thing is like, you got all this stuff happening. You address it as a problem. Now you're gentrifying the same neighborhoods. It's, it's a serious problem. And it wasn't addressed. And it still isn't addressed in the way that it was. It only became a problem when people started using, you know, Xanax and, Getting, a, getting prescription drugs and doing all this different stuff where it really started reaching its tendrils into the upper crust, if you will, in order for it to happen. So, you know, now it's like, you're seeing it as like some people will use certain things and self-medicate because they do not have access to the same amount of things that other people do. As I've asked many poets over the years, can poetry still be used as a tool for social change? At any social change, at the beginning of it, always a poet, you know, taking all of the energy, putting it, you know, becoming a griot, speaking it all into one thing, and then speaking it forth, and then everybody, you know, comes and and listens to it. And um, poetry incites the mind in many different ways. Mojave is the founder of Urban Guerrilla Theater, the Love and Erotic Poetry Weekend, Erotica Slam, a nationwide network of erotic poets, writers, authors, black erotic creatives, and people who love erotica, the Honey Dripper Poetry Collective, and much more. As a podcaster, he hosts the Hidden Radio Show, War Council, the Honey Dripper Erotic Poetry Podcast, and the Fly Speak Open Mic. You can find out even more about him and all of his projects on Facebook and Instagram. For Hudson Mohawk Magazine, I'm Tom Francis. For more Talking with Poets segments, go to our website, mediasanctuary.org, or listen every week for new episodes.
Next, we turn to comedy, and Brad Monkell interviews comedian Carmen Lynch about her upcoming show taking place on March 3rd at the Lark Street Tavern in Albany and her new comedy special on Mark Norman's YouTube channel called Weef Week. So my guest this week on Hudson Mohawk Magazine uh, has an upcoming show at the Lark Street Tavern in Albany on March 3rd, and she just put out a uh, new comedy special on Mark Norman's YouTube channel called Queef Week, and she has an upcoming uh, stand-up special that's all in Spanish. She's made appearances on The Tonight Show with Jimmy Fallon, Conan, Inside Amy Schumer, Last Comic Standing, The Late Show with David Letterman, The Late Show with Stephen Colbert, mm -hmm. and At Midnight, uh, I want to welcome to the show Carmen Lynch. Thank you for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. Wow, you had a, quite a list there. You did some research. <laughs> Honestly, I was going to do more, but that was Wikipedia. So it, it summed oh, it up wow. pretty well for me. It's it's pretty easy to do the research when you, there's so much to pick from. You've done a lot. Oh, so. thank you. So yeah. Thank you for uh, joining us on the show and up in Albany and all that. It's, um, I'm excited to see the show. I was a big fan of the special uh, when thank it came you. out. Um, and, uh, you know, it's... I've gotten a lot of reactions telling people uh, that the special is called Queef Week when I mentioned the show coming up to people. Um, which what is did they a, say? <laughs> well, it's, 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 they always just make a face. It, it almost like yeah. brightens up their day that I just have to say Queef to them. You know what I mean? I feel like yeah. it's, it's a beautiful title for a special. H have you gotten any It's particular... probably not the best. Yeah, I've gotten a lot of reactions. Like people laugh. I say it on stage a lot. I'm like, this is different material. If you want to see my special... Um, it's called Queef Week. And then you always see like people who look confused because some people just don't know uh, what a queef is if they're if they're foreigners or if they're over a certain age. I um, thought at so this point the word was out. I, I so did I. Knew. But it, it's funny. Like, it's also funny because sometimes I do like clean shows and I'll send them my bio. And this one group was like, uh, I, I don't know how to say this, but uh uh, and I could I could tell what they wanted to say because they were big fans, but they were like, we 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 can't. Is there anything else we can use? <laughs> well, I mean, we can't swear on Hudson Mohawk Magazine, but we can talk about queefs as much as we want. Not not that it's going to be a major theme, but if I guess if right. is there anything else you would like to tell the audience to give them context if they don't know what Queef Week might entail. Um, well, the, it's funny, the, the special is not, that's not like a theme throughout the special. Well, I, I know, just, I know, I know. But... I mean, for people who haven't seen it, yeah, yeah. but like, but yeah, there is a joke in there about a situation, uh, that would happen to women. And so obviously I explain it yeah. and it, it, uh, it doesn't, it doesn't happen in this scenario to a lot of women. I haven't met anyone who's had it in, in the place where I talk about in, uh, you know, I'm not going to ruin the joke, but, but in that, in that scenario, but, uh, but yeah, I think most women and men actually, cause you know, if, if most men, uh, it's sometimes it's funny. I'll, I'll, uh, I'll say, does anyone not know what a queef is? And, uh, and it's the man who has to explain it to his girlfriend. So yeah, you never know. It's, yeah. It's been interesting. It and sounds of about course, right. Mark Norman loves that word. So it was kind of perfect to uh, have that as a title. 
Yeah, it's like a it's it's a great promotional device because it's so catchy. It's like a built-in little catchphrase. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> a good reason to talk about it when you have to promote. Yeah. It really lightens yeah. up the conversation, um, especially. I guess this next part of the conversation could go either way. You know, I want to, you're coming up to Albany, which is, which is great. I'm excited to see you, but you know, as a, as a high level New York city comic, I'm sure Albany's the butt of a lot of jokes, uh, in a lot of situations it is to a lot of comics. Yeah. What's, what is I, your impression of Albany going into it? I mean, it's, it's, you know, when you are, uh, down here in, I'm in Queens, I'm not even actually in Manhattan, but, um, but you know, you, uh, I don't know specifics about Albany. My dad did grow up in, uh, upstate. So I'm familiar with like Rochester, Elmira, you know, Syracuse, but I, I don't have specifics of where they are exactly. Yeah. And I hope that doesn't offend anyone who's from Albany, but, um, but I'm always excited to go and uh, and I'm bringing a, a great feature, Andrew Chavone, and we travel a lot together when we, you know, we do road gigs and stuff. So I think it's going to be great. It's going to be really fun. Yeah, I'm excited to see you guys. Albany. I've heard yeah. great things about Andrew as well. Um, so I'm excited to hear. And, you know, I think I think people in Albany have a good sense of humor about it. It is like some some of them get are like, oh, like new york city elites or whatever but most of them are happy to make jokes about albany i'm not trying to say you know you can't i just picture a place where it snows a lot and uh and yeah you have, you have a lot of targets you know uh, <laughs> we, do sure, have, we do sure have way... targets you do okay and dunkin donuts so yeah we got those there's one right next door to the venue actually oh well there you go i mean i'm from virginia so i know what it's like to live in the in the burbs Oh, okay. I'm not I wasn't a, always a, a city girl and I don't always consider myself one. Yeah. Well, you know, it's just where the comedy is. Yeah, yeah, I hear you. But uh, you know, it is cold like you said. I know you were just in Bermuda, so it's yeah. it's not going <laughs> to be not as like refreshing that, so. as yes, but it is it is beautiful. Uh, Pretty nice. Let me out tell today. you it's it's hard to fly from Bermuda on like the most beautiful day. Like it rained while I was there. We had one day of sun. But then to leave and you're like, this is the day the really this is the day where I have to go to the airport. Like, yeah, it's just so, it's it's a tough one. But yeah, life is yeah, hard. Well, hey, well, I'm, like I said, Albany will be it'll still be fun. It'll uh, it'll leave you with a good impression. But hopefully <laughs> you'll see at some point when it's not freezing cold out. Um, I also wanted to ask you, you know, related to your upcoming uh, special that's only in Spanish. You know, it's cool that you can do both English and Spanish shows. Do you have any particular favorite Spanish jokes that you will just try? Like something that's a little bit of Spanish that you like to just try out on an English crowd to see if they can understand it? Um, I mean, most of the, I would say about 65 to 70% of the jokes in the Spanish one are in are from the English special. Oh, like, okay. So a yeah, lot of stuff yeah. works. But the other 25, 30%, I had to just do other jokes because they just didn't translate. Yeah, yeah. So, but what was funny was uh, someone, I was in Spain promoting the Spanish one and uh, and they were like, what is the English one called? And I'm like, Queef Week. And they were like, we don't have a word for Queef. And I was like, you guys don't have a word for a lot of things. So Queef Week in Spanish is literally... La Semana del Pedo Vaginal, which <laughs> which is the, the week of the vaginal fart. 
And I'm like, yeah, that's not what I'm calling Such it. Such a There's beautiful no language. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, yeah, I do got to wrap up in a sec. Uh, but what I, I was thinking of when I brought that up is uh, I, I listened to this Larry David interview on Conan the other day where he's talking about this uh, this bit he used to do when he would when Larry David would do the clubs before Seinfeld. And he would uh, he would say like he would start the special or the uh, show off by saying like, oh, I like you, your great audience so far. I feel like I'm getting to know you. Do you mind if I use the two form? That's and then, hilarious. It, yeah. And, and then he, if they if they didn't get it, he which yeah. I didn't I had to I know a little bit of Spanish and I still didn't, yeah. like I didn't think of that when he it takes a second though yeah. even for me i was like oh the tu form like the spanish not the t instead of usted yeah 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 yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and if they didn't know what he was talking about he would just start ranting at <laughs> but that's great yeah so that, that uh, yeah i wasn't sure if you had any examples like that it just seems like a funny way to approach a set and i feel like there's so many creative options you get with having that like bilingual tool set you know you... i mean usually i just ask who speaks spanish in the audience and yeah. if they do i just start going off in spanish just so it's between us and the whole rest of the audience is completely confused and lost which can be really fun yeah yeah, yeah. um but it's fun it's fun in in certain parts uh, of the world where you go like even in bermuda like most shows i was like is anyone speak spanish and you'd hear this one yo like it was just one <laughs> voice <laughs> I'm like, you guys need more Spanish people. Um, well, hopefully we get some out at, at the show, uh, you know, for everyone who wants to come see Carmen in Albany. Uh, in English. Can, in English. <laughs> it is in English. Yes, it is in English. Unless you want to do some requests in Spanish. <laughs> um, she'll be at the Lark Street Tavern in Albany on March 3rd at 6 p.m. Um, and once again, her special on Mark Norman's YouTube channel is Queef Week. And do you have a title for the Spanish special coming out in May? It's just going to be Carmen Lynch en Español, because I want people to to know uh, that it's, you know, in Spanish. It's just very si. simple. Si. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us. Is there anywhere else you want people to check you out online? Yes, on all socials at Carmen Comedian and Mark Norman's YouTube for Queef Week. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us and uh, I'll see you at the show, Carmen. Have a good one. Sounds good. Thanks so much. And I don't have my script up. Uh, for more funny comedy interviews, go to our website, mediasanctuary.org. And a change of plans for our last segment, but sticking with the theme of jazz, we take a listen back at this interview with jazz trombonist Cliff Anderson from 2020. My name is Andrea Cunliffe, and I'm with WOOC, broadcasting from the Sanctuary of Independent Media in Troy, New York. I'm thrilled today because we have a super guest, Clifton Anderson, trombonist. You have a new album coming out? Yes, yeah, we have a, a new one coming out. Been down this road before is the title track and the title of the uh, full CD. Pretty terrific. I've heard it. I'm sure a lot of other people will hear it. Andy Bay was doing the vocals. Yes, that's correct. The great Andy now Bay. This, well, first of all, I want to know all about you. You grew up in a family that was extremely musical. It was natural for you to find your way into the musical world. I knew that I was interested in music from pretty early on. My parents told me that around the age of three or four, I used to, father was a church organist and choir director. 
during my, I guess I would imitate him conducting. So my parents told me that I would conduct the Perry Mason theme. You know, <laughs> so, you know they kind of saw that I had a, you know, a likeness for music right away. I responded to it all the time. I didn't really become aware that music was what I really truly wanted to do until I would say I was in um, maybe my first year in high school. I think that was around the first time. I went to a, uh, a, a famous high school here in New York City that was a specialized school for, for music, for musicians and artists. It was called uh, Fiorello uh, LaGuardia High School of Music and Art. And, uh, you know, they had a lot of exceptional, exceptionally talented people in there. And even at that point, uh, I wasn't really so certain that I wanted to play music. I knew I loved music, but I also, I was also a tennis player. And I was thinking about, I've kind of flirted with the possibility of trying to become a professional tennis player also right around that time. So um, what broke the straw, uh, really the camel's back for me choosing music was going to uh, one of my uncle's concerts at Carnegie Hall. And that's and Sonny Rollins. Sonny Rollins, that's right. Yeah. I can't, I don't know how old I was. I was probably about uh, 13 maybe 14 years old. That particular concert, Fred, Freddie Hubbard was supposed to be his special guest with him. And at the last minute, Freddie got sick. He called in two of his other friends to come and play the concert, which happened to be Charles Mingus and Dizzy Gillespie. <laughs> you know, so I witnessed that concert, but more importantly, of course, the music was, was phenomenal. More importantly to me, I think what really moved me was, you know, my family, They we all went backstage after the the concert and you know we were mingling with some of the people backstage and you know i was just a young kid but i was just watching i was observing how everybody in that backstage area was so happy they were so elated the the energy there was so there was so much love you know there was like a current of vibration that just felt so good i think that's when i made up my mind i said i want to do this i want to do something that can make people feel this like this you know, I want to be able to do that. So I think that's why I started pursuing music. That was the real moment. You know? what, made you, what made you grasp onto the trombone more than perhaps any other instrument? I mean, you also play the piano, I understand, but... Well, I don't really... I play the piano enough to, to compose, you know, to write on it. I wouldn't try to take a gig, you know. <laughs> but but a trombone was not the very first instrument in the household, in my family's household, everybody had to do something, learn something, had to play an instrument. So, you know, my mother asked me what I like. I like the drums, you know, so they got me one of those little toy drum sets and I was banging on the drums. So my parents didn't really like that too much. <laughs> but I think I was around uh, maybe six years old or seven years old. So my mother took me to this movie, The Music Man. But anyway, there's a scene in there. They're marching down the street and they're singing this song, 76 Trombones Led the Big Parade. And the scene, the visual up there were these trombones marching down the street playing, you know, and everybody is like yelling and shouting and screaming and like, you know, happy. So I told my mother, I want to play that. <laughs> <laughs> Good and choice. So, Good choice. Yeah, so she, she, told, she told my uncle, not much later, I had a trombone. My uncle bought me my first trombone. And that was Sonny Rollins. Yes. 
listening to your music, there's so many influences there. And I'm wondering, you know, how, how did you end up finding your own, well, your own sound? Or how would you describe your, your musical personality? I just love music. I love good music. I leaned towards improvisation, you know, music that we call jazz here, because um, from an intellectual place and also a spiritual, the combination of finding the, the connection, spiritual and intellectual connections in that music to me is very intriguing. It's always very intriguing. So I always had a leaning towards that. My godmother, she found out that I had a trombone. I got a, uh, a recording of J.J. Johnson that she bought for me. And we'd put it on, and I was, you know, and I was fooling around with the trombone a little bit. I never heard a trombone sound like that. So I was not even, you know, at first I wasn't even really convinced that that was a trombone that was playing. I was very influenced initially in terms of the instrument itself by J.J. Johnson, by the sound that he got in. He played the trombone. I'm sorry? I don't know who J.J. Johnson is. Oh, oh, J.J. Johnson is the famous, he's, he is considered the father of modern jazz trombone. He came up in the uh, 40s. Uh, he was one of the first people to hire uh, Sonny Rollins also. They, I mean, they made a, a, a very famous record, Volume 1, on Blue Note. It's Sonny's record, but J.J. is on there, and Thelonious Monk and Horace Silver, Art Blakey, you know, Paul Ch I mean, it's an incredible record. Yeah, there's so many influences. Um, if you want to ask what were my primary influences in playing, playing this music, it would have to be J.J. Johnson and Sonny uh -huh. Rollins, yeah. those two. Right. And my style has kind of a little combination of them, which I've kind of morphed into my own thing. But, you know, having played with Sonny for the amount of time that I've played with him, I've toured the world with him and recorded with him for close to 28 years, highly influenced by him, whether consciously was aware of it or not. And, of course, J.J. Johnson and many of the other great trombonists, you know, Curtis Fuller, Slide Hampton, in particular, was also a major influence. Slide, Slide Hampton, one of the great jazz trombonists. He was the guy who had the all-trombone band, right? Right. I was one of the original members. Wow. Of, uh, yeah, I was one of the original members of his group here called the World of Trombones. Now, how many people were in there? How many musicians were generally? I mean, I'm sure there was some shit. Well, well yeah, it, it, it fluctuated through the years, and he's, he's revisited it again back and forth. But when I think it was about seven of us, and then he expanded it to nine altogether. Did you have any competition amongst you guys? I mean, I can oh, imagine. It was, <laughs> it was highly competitive. It was yeah. all the guys. All of the guys, if you know... Uh, it's funny because the other guys that I really like on the instrument that play it are all the guys that came out of that group. We, we came up together. A few of us were a little older, a, a great trombonist, Steve Teray, who was in the group. Then the group had a lead trombone player named Janice Robinson. A female. woman. And she was the, uh, really, she was the successor to, in jazz trombone, female jazz trombonist, to the great Melba Liston, who was um, in, the, in the 50s pretty well-known and established uh, trombonist, worked with Quincy Jones, did a lot of things, you know, played with everybody. But anyway, uh, Janice Robinson was in there, and uh, Steve Teray, myself. Let's see, uh, there were a few guys around the city, Earl McIntyre. We were all around the same age, so we all thought we were hot. We were hot. <laughs> and um, it was a very competitive thing, even though 
it wasn't, you know, Sly did not say, oh, you know, you guys have to see, who, let's see who's best. It wasn't that kind of a, a conscious thing at all. When you have, you know, that many young hotheads in a group and, you know, they're considered the best trombone players around New York City that you brought together, everybody is competitive. Well, what shut us all up was when Sly would take a solo. <laughs> He'd sort of show you what was going on, right? And then we realized that, um, you know, we, we realized that, uh, well, you know, we don't have it really together yet. You know, we think we do. You've reached the sound oh. that you want, or are you still oh. Oh, never, never, never. I mean, that's the beauty of, of, of being involved in this uh, in, endeavor, you know. Uh, you never, there's always a lot more to learn. There's always a lot more to understand. There's always a lot more to assimilate into the music because what you're really doing is expressing your life experiences, you know. So uh, the longer you live, I, I really appreciate, you know, the trend in this music right now is to focus on young players. Uh, young players, they have a lot of chops, you know, they have a lot of energy, but they don't really, for me, when, you, when I want to hear somebody really say something that's developed their own voice and has something really. And that is a interview with jazz trombonist Clifton Anderson from our archives. And there is a part two, which you can find at mediasanctuary.org. And that's our show. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. I'm Sina Basila Hickey. And I'm Kellen McPherson, also your engineer for tonight. We want to thank all our volunteers who made today's episodes possible. Uh, this is a team effort. Uh, contributors to today's episode are Mark Dunley, Elizabeth E.P. Press, Tom Francis, and Brad Monkell, and last minute, Andrea Cunliffe. This program covers stories of a social and environmental justice produced by the community for the community and is supported by independent donations. If you value independent media, consider a gift of a monthly donation as a sanctuary sustainer by going to mediasanctuary.org. We want to hear from you. You can find us on Instagram and Facebook at Hudson Mohawk Mag or send us an email to hmm at mediasanctuary.org. And tune in weekdays at 7 a.m., 9 a.m., and 6 p.m. to hear local news or stream Sanctuary Radio at mediasanctuary.org. Full episodes and individual stories are available on demand at our website and on your favorite podcast platform. And thanks to you, our listeners, for making this all worthwhile.